Good morning, Mercy House. My name is Alden. Happy Palm Sunday. Yeah. Hi, Dad. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah, happy Palm Sunday. That's why we have, as Tommy mentioned, we have palm leaves hanging around. Some people were waving them around before the service started. And I thought a helpful way to open up this time is reading a passage about Palm Sunday and why we celebrate Palm Sunday and what Palm Sunday is all about. So this will be on the screens to my right and to my left. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. I'll read that now. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming out to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Maybe we might be wondering what's the deal about palm leaves in particular? What, like, why was it significant that they waved those around? Palm leaves throughout various ancient cultures have represented victory. Take, for example, Nike, the Greek goddess of victory. One of her symbols is a palm leaf. And so this crowd is declaring Jesus' victory. They're declaring his kingship with these palm branches. They're declaring him king of Israel in verse 13. John acknowledges these events with Jesus as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as well. This uh, chap chapter 12 of John in verse 15, that verse 15 is a quote from Zechariah 9.9. And in that quote, it talks about a savior is coming and that's Hosanna. They're acknowledging that Jesus is a savior. And so the, he, John recognizes in retrospect that this uh, Zechariah 9.9 is being fulfilled here in John chapter 12. And Jesus, just as predicted in Zechariah 9.9, is riding on a donkey. And this crowd, though, they think they're honoring Jesus. But as is often the case, these people are giving lip service to him and claim to honor him. But then once faced with adversity about Jesus, they flaked. This is the same crowd that five days later on Good Friday was shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus knew their hearts, though. Luke 19, 41 through 44, describes the same thing that John 12 describes, Jesus' entry to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And right after Jesus re receives praise from these people, he starts weeping because he knows what's in their hearts and he knows that they don't really know who he is. But Jesus knowingly and willingly went anyway, both to Jerusalem and to the cross five days later. But we'll talk more about Palm Sunday later. For now, let's dig into our text for this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you want to follow along, you can pull out the Bibles under your chair. There's Bibles around underneath the chairs in front of you if there's not one under your chair. But we're just going to go verse by verse. It might be helpful to see it in the Bible that you're holding. But so in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, I'm going to give a little summary real quick, an overview. Verses 1 through 3 is the first paragraph of the chapter. And basically the theme there is love is supreme over knowledge. Love is supreme over knowledge. The second paragraph is verses four through six, and they teach that there's only one God, that one God made us, and we exist for his purposes. There's only one God, that one God made us, and we exist for his purposes. And then the way that the chapter closes out in a longer paragraph, verses seven through 13, and those basically teach us, even though we're free to behave in certain ways as Christians, we have liberty to behave, in certain ways, our first motivation for our behavior should always be love. And we should be willing to neglect our freedom 
for the sake of loving our brother and sister in Christ. All of this of chapter 8 is taught in the context of teaching about food offered to idols. I think some of this is removed from us who live in the U.S., and we don't really see idol worship going on on a regular basis, but a little context and a little bit of overarching argument of chapter 8 I think might help us since we're so removed from this. But in other continents, especially Africa and Asia, these verses apply very directly to other parts of the world uh, because there's idol worship going on there pretty explicitly, even though it might not be, that, be the case here. But even for us in the U.S. here, I think there's still a lot that we can learn about God, number one, about chapter 8. Similar how we read the Old Testament when God commanded them to behave certain ways. We, as New Testament believers, aren't required to believe to, uh, we're required to believe it. We're not required to obey in the same way. But those things, those commandments in the Old Testament still teach us about God, don't they? And so I think for one thing, that principle applies here. We can learn about God. But also there's applications from the Corinthian situation that are valuable for us, especially how to love our brothers and sisters when we have liberties and they're not comfortable with us using them. So how food offered to idols worked in Corinth, maybe for some background here, there were a lot of idol temples in Corinth and they would uh, host worship services to these idols that people would worship. And you could eat this food you could eat it during the worship service as a way of worshiping the idol. That was expressly forbidden. That's in chapter 10. We're going to preach on that in a couple weeks. But that was expressly forbidden. You're not supposed to worship other idols as a Christian. I think we can get behind that. But then the other way that you could eat the idols, rather than just during the worship service, was the food after it would be offered to idols, whether it was grain, fruit, vegetables, or meat, would go to the market after it was sacrificed at a discounted rate. And some Corinthian Christians were buying it in the marketplace. And the quote-unquote weak Christians, and we'll talk about why they're called weak in a moment, the weak Christians thought it was wrong to eat this marketplace food offered to idols. And I think they're described as weak for a few reasons. I'll give them here. Number one, they lack the specific knowledge that verse 8 of our text provides. And I'll quote that here. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. It's neutral as far as our walk with God goes. So they lack that knowledge. That's one way they're weak in knowledge. But number two, they're concerned that an idol might have real substance to it. So that's another thing. Number three, when they saw others doing it, they became prone to stumbling themselves. So they weren't resolved to not sin. They were disposed to sin more so than perhaps the knowledgeable Christians may have been. And so for those three reasons, they're described as weak. More to come on the meaning of the word weak in a moment here. But for now, the knowledgeable were hurting their fellow weaker believers by flaunting their supposedly superior knowledge and also their liberty to eat this food. And this caused the weak to sin against their own conscience and thus become destroyed, as verse 11 talks about, because they were pressured to behave in the same way that the knowledgeable did, even though they themselves thought it was sin. Paul concludes this chapter in verse 13, where he says that we need to be willing to totally abstain from certain foods for the sake of our brother in Christ, brother and sister in Christ, even if we're totally permitted to do it. How chapter 8 fits into the broader argument of 1 Corinthians, it's nestled in between two other chapters. So 7, 8, and 9 have a similar theme behind them, different liberties that Christians have. Chapter 7, Tommy preached on last week, the Christian liberty to marry. Chapter 8 describes the Christian liberty to eat food offered to idols. Chapter 9 describes the gospel minister's liberty to raise funds for his or her gospel ministry. So all of three of these chapters talk about different liberties Christians have. 
And so, as we move into verse 1 of our text, we read, Now concerning food offered to idols. That's what the whole chapter is dedicated to. It's a subject change from the liberty to marry. And then Paul goes on. We know that all of us possess knowledge, verse 1 continues. Now, this is either a response to a Corinthian letter that they sent to the, that the Corinthians sent to Paul, or it might be a Corinthian slogan. Either way, this is something the Corinthians said to Paul, and that's why it's in quotes. Quote, all of us possess knowledge. And this is something that Paul responds to now. And he says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so, knowledge is a good and useful gift. But it can also make us prideful, can't it? The more we know, the more prideful we can tend to be, right? Love, on the other hand, builds people up. The specific knowledge here that's being talked about is the knowledge that they're free to eat any type of food that they want. Verse 8 makes that clear. However, love is still supreme over knowledge. Knowledge is good, but it doesn't necessarily help people. Not everything that's true is helpful, right? Take, for example, someone is one month into starting a restaurant business, and you pipe up with your knowledge, did you know that restaurants are the most failed business type in the U.S.? Well, thanks for your help, right? You exercised your knowledge, but you didn't love them back there, did you? So not everything that's true is helpful, but love truly builds. And that's why we're commanded to speak the truth in love in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, or why in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, it says, if I have all knowledge but not love, I'm nothing. Verse 2 goes on. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. This is really humbling language, isn't it? Paul is basically saying, oh, Corinthians, you think you know something? You have a nice imagination. Let me take you to school because you don't yet know enough. Now, we learned in chapters 1 through 3 of this book of 1 Corinthians that the Corinthians took a lot of pride in their worldly wisdom and in their lofty Greek philosophy. So this is a real punch in the nose because they were so proud of how smart they were. They especially need this punch because they're flaunting their knowledge at the weaker Christians. Plus, they lack the specific knowledge about how they need to use their knowledge for love's sake. So they really are being taken to school in a sense. Even just in general, people who know a lot about a topic are usually the people who recognize that they have a lot more to learn, whether Christian or not. I've studied with experts in two different fields of study in my life. In grad school a couple years ago at UMass, I did research with experts in mechanical engineering. I'm in seminary right now, and I study under experts in biblical scholarship. Both groups of scholars that I interacted with recognized that they knew some things. I mean, they were experts, they were PhDs, they oversaw PhD students, right? They did research. They, they knew that they knew stuff, but they also recognized that they had a lot more to learn. In fact, in my experience, it's usually the young people who know comparably little who are the most prideful about what they know. And it's the seasoned scholars who are the most humble about their views. So a takeaway from this verse is all of our knowledge about everything is insufficient. It is less than it should be. It's less than it could be. We never achieve knowing enough or knowing it all. And that brings us to verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Notice the amount of knowledge here is insufficient. The quantity of knowledge is insufficient. But loving God is either zero or one. It's binary. You either love God or you don't. And if you love God at all, you're totally known by Him. And the same goes for loving people. When we love people with our actions and our words, our hearts are exposed to them. 
And we're known by those that we love because they really see us. They see our heart for them. We're known by them. We should be more concerned to love and to be known than to collect information. It's better to be dumb and be known than to be brilliant and have nobody know you. This went against the values of Corinth, and I think it goes against our values as well. As far as Corinth goes, they praised worldly wisdom and Greek philosophy, and they needed to reorient their thinking to prioritize the gospel over that worldly wisdom. That's what chapters 1 through 3 were largely dedicated to. This goes against our values too, I think. We so admire smart people, and we're so intimidated by experts, especially being in a college town. A lot of us went to college. A lot of us are in college right now. I think we overvalue our own knowledge, and we undervalue being known personally, and we undervalue loving people. An example in my life that's illuminated this verse for me, I'm known by my fiance Megan, because I love her. She sees my heart for her. I'm exposed to her because I seek to love her with my actions and with my words. She sees my motives for her, and she sees me trying to care for her and trying to flatter her. And because of that, she knows me. I'm known by her. My experience with Megan is so much better than just learning facts, even facts about her. I'm not trying to take a quiz about Megan. I'm trying to experience life with her. And I do experience her, and she experiences me when I love her. I'm known by her because I love her. And this goes for all of us. This principle applies to our walk with God. This principle applies to our relationships with others. After all, I know I quoted this verse earlier, but chapter 13, verse 2, if I have all knowledge but not love, I'm nothing. Two takeaways, maybe some slogans from this verse that might be helpful to take this home. Number one, it is greater to be known personally than to know facts. It is greater to be known personally than to know facts. And number two, we are known when we love. We are known when we love. And then the next paragraph opens up with verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So these two phrases are in quotes because the the Corinthians reasons for eating the food offered to idols. They're like, listen, first, quote, an idol has no real existence. Idols aren't real anyway. They're statues or carvings made of rock or wood. They're powerless. Number two, there's only one God. There is no God but one. These idols aren't actually competing with God. He's the only one who's real. Thus, food offered to idols is no different than normal food. And they're right. Verse eight makes that clear. They have the facts largely right. Paul is not correcting their theology in this chapter. He's correcting their behavior. They need to take this knowledge that they have, this theology that they have, and use it to love their brother and their sister. I know I can feel the temptation, maybe some of you will relate to this, to get really excited about theology and learning things about the Bible. I go to seminary, I get really excited about that stuff. But sometimes I can neglect to live it out. I get so caught up in learning stuff that I forget to do it. And walking with God is not fundamentally about learning things about God. Walking with God is fundamentally about loving God and loving others. Let me prove this to you. Matthew chapter 22, 36 through 39, summarized here. People ask Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? His response is, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. He does not say that the greatest commandment is, study me. 
You know, he said, no, walking with God is fundamentally about loving God and loving others. And then Paul uses verses five and six to prove this point correct that they brought up in verse four. So these are continuations of uh, verse four. Verses five through six, they'll be in the screens. I'll read them now together. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This language of gods and lords in quotes, basically many people call many things gods and lords. They ascribe many titles to things that they worship. And there are a lot of things people worship other than the one God. But we as Christians recognize the fact that there is only one God. Psalm 136, this will be on the slides here, 136 verses 2 through 3 make a similar point. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. So yeah, there's little g gods and little l lords, but there's really only one real one. There's really only one real God and really only one real Lord. And he's God over these little gods that aren't even real. And he's God over these little lords that aren't real. That's why they're, verse 5, so-called. They're so-called gods in heaven or on earth because they're simply called gods and lords. But in fact, they are not. This text is also one of several that show us the unity and the oneness of God while also describing God as multiple persons throughout the Bible, not just with this verse, but we see that God is a trinity throughout the Bible. The Spirit is not in this text, but He's in others. Um, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you want to talk more about with me afterwards about how do we know there's a trinity, I'm happy to do that. That would make my day. That's not really what this, ver- this sermon's about, but no charge if you want to do that. But... Um, I just want to point out the unity here between the Father and Jesus. The word um, God and the word Lord often in the Bible are synonymous. In fact, in the Old Testament, when you see your Bible's capitalized Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, that's because it's translating God's name, Yahweh. There's a different word for capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And so Yahweh is the name for God in the Old Testament, the Father. But there's a lot of New Testament texts that describe Jesus by talking about texts that talk about Yahweh. So Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus and Yahweh are the same God. Jesus and the Father are one. And now we hear about the roles of the Father and the roles of Jesus. They're one, and there's also distinct personalities here, right? So the Father, he created everything. That's what the phrase, from whom are all things, means. We exist for him. That's what the phrase, and for whom we exist, means. And then talking about the Lord Jesus, he supports all things that exist, including and especially us. That's what the phrase, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Colossians 1, 17 says, in Jesus, all things hold together. This is a cosmic supporting. I don't totally know how mechanically that all works out, but on a cosmic level, Jesus is supporting the universe. Everything that is, Jesus is holding it together. We exist from God. We exist for God. We exist through God. Right now, we are traveling through time toward God. We exist for his purposes. God is our origin. God is our goal. God is our sustenance. We are entirely held together by God. He started us. He will finish us. All of ourselves belongs to God. And that's what motivates us to love him. 
and to love our brothers and sisters. And then we move into the final paragraph. The first sentence is on the screen here, verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. So this knowledge is coming from verse 4. Um, verses 5 through 6, again, are explanations of verse 4 and extensions of it. So verse 4 is the main point of that paragraph. Specifically, I think they don't know the first quote, an idol has no real existence. The reason I think that's what Paul's talking about is because otherwise, if they didn't believe there is only one God, they wouldn't be brothers, quote, at all, would they? Christians are monotheists. So I think that this is an extension of the idea, an idol has no real existence. Not everybody knows, Paul's saying, that an idol has no real existence. The continuation of verse 7, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So this phrase, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. These are people who have worshipped idols before, but have since been converted into Christianity, but they're scarred by the sins of their past in whatever form. Perhaps that looks like they can't help but think about the food that's offered to idols as if it were an act of worship because they're so used to that, even though objectively that's not technically what Scripture says is going on. There may have been various ways that um, the past idol worship would have affected these Corinthians. Whatever their exact personal experience, they don't feel right about eating the food because of their past. And then the phrase, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Conscience is just our ability to discern right from wrong. And that is what gets defiled. And so the weak Christians being described in this verse their ability to determine right from wrong gets damaged and humiliated because of the behavior of the more knowledgeable. I think a close modern-day example of this is drinking alcohol. Christians are free to drink alcohol without necessarily sinning as long as we don't get drunk. A few verses that support this. Psalm 104.15, God gives wine to gladden the heart of man. 1 Timothy 5.23, these are Paul's directions to Timothy. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Matthew 26, 26 through 29, this is Jesus at the Last Supper. He drinks wine with his disciples. John chapter 2, 1 through 11, Jesus turns water into wine. The point being is in and of itself, Christians are free to drink alcohol with no spiritual harm and no spiritual benefit in and of itself. But take, for example, that ex-alcoholic who's coming out of an unhealthy uh, party lifestyle. They associate drinking with sinfulness because that's the whole world they come from. They're unfamiliar with people drinking casually in a way that honors God. They think if they have a drink, they're sinning, even though technically they're permitted to do that as far as the Bible goes. We should not encourage people like that to drink. We can teach them about the ethics of alcohol later, but for now, we just need to love them and keep their conscience undefiled. We should pass them a seltzer, or I, that's me, I like seltzer. Maybe you like lemonade or soda, whatever, or water, but we shouldn't impose our knowledge on them is the point that I'm making. We should not defile their conscience. We should just love them. I also want to highlight the first two words of this sentence, the second half of verse seven, but some. This, this truth about defiled consciences and stuff, this is true for some of the Corinthians, but it's not true for all of them. It's but some. So some Christians with past experiences with food offered to idols were scarred, but some were not. So I just want to mention that if you personally in this room have deep scars from sins of your past, maybe you can relate to the weak in this text. 
especially having just listened to several sermons on sex and marriage. Maybe you're recently thinking about the sexual sins of your past, and that's bringing stuff up in your heart, and you're realizing you're scarred by that. Last week, we read in chapter 7, verse 1, this was the Corinthians' overreaction to their sexual sin. They said, it's better to have no sexual relations. Well, Paul spent the better part of a chapter qualifying that statement. So I just want to say, your scars might be permanent, but I don't want to give that to you. They might not be. You might be healed. God's able to heal you from whatever you've been through. And even if it is permanent, God can still comfort you in that and will And be comforted that your brothers and sisters in Christ are commanded to love you in that struggle. Paul is not saying that consciences are permanently defiled here. He's simply teaching how to cater to those who presently have the struggle. I also want to point out that nowhere in this chapter does Paul tell the weak to get stronger. I mean, sure, they can grow in their knowledge, but there's also stuff going on in their hearts. Like, oh, I just can't be around this right now. And all the instruction in chapter 8 is for the knowledgeable and calling the knowledgeable out for their poor behavior. He's not shaming the weak. There's no shame in being weak in this way. I think there's a lot of strength in someone's spirit if they're willing to admit, this is bad for me, I can't be around this. So I just want to point that out. If If you relate to the weak here, don't feel ashamed Paul's not doing that to you, and I I hope you don't hear me doing that to you either. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So this text is one of several that teach us that we know we're allowed to eat whatever food. In and of itself, it doesn't affect our standing before God. This verse is saying it's not worse, it's not better. There is no advantage either way. And the word food here, this is not food offered to idols anymore. This is just food in general. That's broader than idol food, isn't it? So whether this food is offered to an idol or not, whether it's kosher or not, like the Old Testament laws that I mentioned earlier, whether it's vegan or not, spiritually, food in and of itself neither helps nor hurts us. And the Corinthians understood this, which is why in chapter 6, verse 13, they said, look, the food is meant for the stomach and the stomach's meant for food. The food goes in, the stomach is made for it, and that's all that's going on. And Paul's like, yeah, in a sense, that's right. Jesus makes a similar point. Matthew chapter 15, verses 17 through 19 will be on the screens here. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And so the truth is, in and of itself, food doesn't commend us to God. No advantage, no harm, either way, in and of itself. And in part, some people were described as weak because they didn't recognize that. And how to handle the weak, how to interact with the weak. Verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This is a continuation of the theme from chapter 6, verse 12, when the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. But then Paul qualifies it, doesn't he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, he says. So yeah, we're free to eat whatever we want. But we must be careful that what we eat is not an instrument of stumbling to another believer. We need to make sure we're helpful, not just simply neutral. And when we are free to choose, we're commanded to first prioritize the well-being of our fellow Christians. We're called to love before we're called to exercise our freedom. I think this is an uncomfortable word, especially for those of us who've lived in the U.S. for a while and take a lot of pride in our freedoms and our liberties, right? Now, I don't think it's bad to have freedom. I think it's good to have freedom. I think it's even good to exercise our freedoms. 
but we need to be willing to neglect our freedoms for the sake of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Rather than setting up a stumbling block, let's clear a pathway for them to run to God. Because as we learned earlier, God is their goal. Let's not interfere with God's goal for them. And as we interact with other Christians, even as we disciple other Christians, yeah, let's gain knowledge, but let's do it humbly. And let's use that knowledge to love people. And let's consider the conscience of others because, my friends, our actions do affect people. We ought to ask ourselves, I ought to ask myself, I don't think I do this enough, how do my actions affect others? Sometimes the people we do life with are broken in ways that we just simply need to cater to. It might be hard to relate to their defiled conscience, but God's call to love them remains the same. A brief aside that I do want to mention, this text is teaching about behavior that's explicitly allowed in Scripture, like food offered to idols, and I think alcohol is a good example of this, something permitted. But there are behaviors that are neither permitted nor forbidden in Scripture. Maybe we could call them gray areas for the sake of conversation. Gray areas are not exactly what this text is about, but I do want to address it briefly. I think a similar principle applies even for those behaviors. For example, I on purpose made this a little controversial in hopes to make it cut both ways. Watching movies with certain ratings, smoking cigarettes, smoking cigars, or swearing. I'm not saying these things are right. I'm, it's not my purpose up here to comment on whether Christians should ever do those things or not. I'm only bringing these behaviors up because there are Christians who exist who believe these things are wrong. And these Christians are not weak because Scripture doesn't address these specific topics. The weak in this text are opposed to explicitly permitted behaviors. There's a small difference there. But regardless, we are always called, not just in 1 Corinthians 8 situations, to love those around us, aren't we? Even if we feel totally free to behave in a certain way, let's make sure that we seek to remove stumbling blocks, whether we're explicitly permitted to or whether it's a little bit gray. Let's make sure that we remove as many stumbling blocks as we can in the name of loving our brother and sister. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So it's when they see. That's a, there's an if statement there. This, this applies only when someone who is weak is able to observe you acting a certain way. If there's no one around you who's going to be compromised and you're certain that the Bible allows your behavior, you're permitted to feel free to act in that way. Go for it. The issue is if anyone who is weaker, who's going to be negatively affected by that, can see you. I also want to highlight the word encouraged here. The Greek root of this is the same word for build in chapter 3. And that chapter is largely about the call to build the church rather than to destroy the church. Verse 11, we're going to get there, but it talks about how if we do this, we destroy the believer. I think there's a similarity here. Our, when we think we might be building a believer by like leading by example because we're knowledgeable, we're not actually building them in this situation. We're destroying them. So let's not do that. Let's build the church, not destroy it. Let's build our brothers and not destroy them. A really practical way to live this out, I think, is when people express discomfort about something we're doing, we, we can stop. Romans 14, 23 has been really helpful for me as I think about like gray areas or oh, am I certain that this is a good idea? It'll be up on the screen here. Romans 14, 23 reads, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so for ourselves, 
Let's live in confidence and in conviction that our behavior is good. And let's help others also live the same way. An example of this being put into practice that I got to be a part of was a couple of my friends from Mercy House invited me and some guys from my small group over for dinner, and my friends wanted to serve margaritas. But first, before doing that, my friends had me check in with each guy individually and ask each of them if they were comfortable with alcohol being served. That way there was no peer pressure like, hey, are any of you guys okay with this? You don't, don't be the loser. You know, it wasn't like that. It was like individual, right? They all responded to me individually and said that they were fine with that. And so my friends served margaritas. Not everybody drank a margarita because not everybody was comfortable doing that, but we were sure that nobody was going to stumble from others drinking around them because we asked in advance. And so I think my friends rightly applied this text to their modern lives. Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Behaving this way, leading by example like that, does not build the weaker believer. It destroys them. Their conscience is destroyed. Their life is being ruined as we're encouraging them back into this life of idolatry, similar with the ex-alcoholic. I think it's fair to say, if we encourage someone back into alcoholism, I think it's fair to say on some level we're destroying them. We're certainly not helping, right? Even if this isn't in an ultimate sense, I I do want to mention this word destroyed. I just want to mention that I do not believe a genuine believer can lose their salvation. There's a number of texts that talk about this, but one of them that I'm putting on the screens here, John chapter 6, verse 37 reads, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's what Jesus says. So here we have the Father gives them, Jesus keeps them. God doesn't like drop someone or like misplace them like, oh, where'd they go? No, we are secure in God. So I don't believe that we have the power to cause a believer to stop being a believer. I don't think that that's something we're powerful enough to do. But I also don't want to soften this warning. We want to make sure we're not accused of destroying someone, don't we? And this this phrase is destroyed in verse 11, that's passive on the weaker believer's part. It's active on the knowledgeable Christian's part, those of us who have studied the Bible a lot. So let's not be responsible for destroying our brother and sister. I should also point out in verse 10, it's the weaker believer who proactively eats it, right? So there's a mutual responsibility here. But I don't think any of us want to be a part of being partially responsible for any form of destruction of our fellow believers. Those fellow believers are people who, the brother for whom Christ died. Jesus has already been destroyed on our brother and sister's behalf. Let's not do double damage. Now God, take him for example, God is more entitled than anyone, and he was more entitled than anyone to exercise his liberty and his freedom, but he was willing to get off his throne, to get nails in his wrists, to suffocate to death on the cross, and to endure God's punishment for the sake of my brothers and sisters. And if he was willing to do that for them, then gosh, I can give up a few petty freedoms for them. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. I'm going to highlight the middle phrase here first, and wounding their conscience when it is weak. We are guilty of wounding. Some synonyms in Greek here are to strike or to deliver a blow. We don't want to be guilty of beating up our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's not do that. Let's not beat them up. Let's love them. 
And now the outside, the extreme outside phrases are sinning against your brothers, you sin against Christ, it says. A similar uh, verse about this is Matthew 25, 40 to 45. Jesus is talking about his disciples and he says, what you did for the least of them, you did for me. And what you did not do for them, you did not do for me. If we sin against our brother or our sister, we sin against Jesus himself. And if we love our brother and sister, we are loving Jesus himself. That's why verse 13 says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. We need to be willing, my friends, to totally give up our rights for the rest of our lives for the sake of our fellow Christians. This word never, that's a lifelong commitment. I will never eat meat, Paul says. Now, for what it's worth, I don't think this means that Paul actually gave up eating meat for the rest of his life. Why don't I think that? In chapter 10, verse 27 of this book, Paul is instructing the Corinthians. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. He's commanding them literally to eat whatever is set before them, including potentially meat, right? Plus, meat isn't specifically what's being sacrificed to idols either. It's just food offered to idols in the text. This is the first time meat is mentioned in the whole book. So I think this is an example, because it's not even really what Paul's been talking about the whole time, but it's an example of something that Paul is willing to give up. So let's not soften these words either. If he needs to, Paul's willing to give up meat for the rest of his life. That's the level of love that we ought to have for our brothers and sisters in Jesus. And Jesus, he is the ultimate example of this, isn't he? Jesus did that. That's why he went to the cross. In Matthew 26, verse 1, Jesus is getting arrested to be crucified. And he says, I can call more than 12 legions of angels to save me. But he didn't. He had the freedom. He had the liberty not to go to the cross. He was, he's God. But he willingly and knowingly went anyway. And that's why we recognize Palm Sunday. Jesus wasn't getting the honor he deserved 2,000 years ago on, Paul's, on Palm Sunday. He deserved earnest worship from all of creation for all of eternity. He's God. All things were made through him. He deserves this. This is what his liberties are to receive that. And he didn't come, but he, he didn't get that. He, he was getting lip service from people who would betray him five days later, who would kill him. And he didn't come galloping in on some noble steed like a real God or a real Lord would. No, he came in on a donkey. He was entitled to honor, but from Palm Sunday to the cross, he gave up that honor for the shame and the disgrace and the punishment that we deserve, none of which he deserved. This is what makes him a savior worth following. That's why we should earnestly say, Hosanna, savior. Jesus gave us the honor he deserved, that he was entitled to. He gave that to us. We get honored with Jesus in heaven, and he took upon himself the dishonor that we deserve. And that's why we take communion, because Jesus died for us. He was destroyed for us. Jesus talks about the bread on the Last Supper, and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to trust Jesus as Savior of your life. He loves you enough to give up his freedoms just to invite you to follow him. And if you do follow him, then for the first time, come to this table, come have communion, 
And remember what Jesus gave up for you. If you're still not a Christian right now, though, you shouldn't take communion because you haven't received what Jesus gave. But I do want to warn you, if you refuse to believe in Jesus and if you refuse to follow him, your fate will be the same that Jesus' was on the cross. You will endure God's punishment, but you'll endure it eternally, the Bible says. So I plead with you, come follow Jesus with your whole life because he gave up his whole life to offer you eternal life with him. Come take him up on it and come have communion and remember what he gave up for you. We're going to take communion in a moment. The way we're going to do that is there's going to be people handing out the bread and the cup here. We're going to form two lines. You can come down whenever you're ready. Loop back around into your seats. You don't have to wait for a queue. You'll be able to do that. There are going to be people in the back that are there to pray for you. Whether you're a Christian or not, they would love to pray for you. That's why they're there. So take them up on that. Let's pray and then we'll take communion. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for giving up all of your rights for our sake, so that we could enjoy heaven with you and eternal life with you. Thank you that we are known by you. Thank you that because we're known by you, we love you. Help us love you better. Show us how to love our neighbor because we love you. Help us to love you well. Help us give ourselves up. Help us give our rights up for the sake of the well-being of our brother and sister and help us to not put a stumbling block in front of them. Jesus, thank you for taking the stumbling blocks out of our own lives. Thank you for saving us from hell and saving us into eternal life with you, God. Help us to follow your example as you became a mere man, <laughs> even though you were entitled to enjoy all the effects of godliness, Lord. You didn't take yourself up on it. You became a man and dwelt humbly with us. Let us give our liberties up for your sake as well, for the sake of those that you died for. In your name we pray. Amen.